Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Someone give me a hi. Hello. Glad you're here this morning. Yay. There we are. Fantastic. Um, Chris and Renee, thank you for sharing this morning. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant to get a picture of kind of some of the experiences that uh, you could also have over in East Timor if you want to join one of the teams at another time heading over that way as well. Just as we get into the morning, unpack some of the things that were shared there in that space um, in some quite interesting perspectives about Jesus. Uh, we did a pulse check. I once asked a leader a few years ago, what's the key thing about leadership tip? Give me your leadership tip. And he said, communication, communication, communication. And so um, I got the idea it was about communication and uh, always keeping that abreast. And we did a pulse check a few uh, weeks ago, the last sort of two weeks, 95 people responded, which was brilliant. And um, these are the sort of the top three at three things that kind of came out about our communication around here at NCR. So firstly, is that when we're asked the question, is, is our communication good? Is it happening around here at NCR? Um, 93% said strongly agree or agree to that. So that kind of affirmed us along the way. We thought that's good. Um, and then we said, what's the best form of communication for you? Because we want to communicate what's happening in the life of the community. And email was the uh, top one, uh, which was interesting because we sent it out via email. So we thought, well, that might be stacking the branches or branch stacking a little bit. But Facebook, mail, postal mail and website were the other ways. And the, the final thing that came out for us as a leadership team was that people were saying, we love hearing about the community because there's always so many different things happening around the life of NCR. And I agree with that. So uh, we're going to think of some ways that we can sort of systematically get some more information about what's happening in the life of the community. In fact, if you didn't get an email and you're thinking, I didn't get to respond to that, there is a hard copy. If you're a hard copy person, you can grab one of these on the table on the way out, fill it out, place it in the burgundy letterbox, and we will get that information as well. In two weeks' time, we have our next Engage. Did you know if you are new here around NCR and you're wondering what's the Engage, it's a way in which we gather together and we say on a particular Sunday morning, we start at nine, some worship in song and prayer, and then at 10 o'clock we head out into the highways and byways and engage our community for good. And so there are at least 10 things happening in this next one, and there might be more. So just a quick run through, because I thought this was brilliant. Firstly, Jen Ayton's going to be talking about Australian aid, not from a political persuasion, but just to say this is how it works in aid being distributed across the life of Australia, uh, Australian aid in the countries abroad. And she's going to be informing people about that. A brilliant activity. Um, painting. Erin's got a friend who needs part of her house painted. And so some people can gather around that and do that. I think Lucas is organising a soccer game because he just loves soccer and he wants to involve mates, friends, next-door neighbours, people you meet on the street. You can be involved in that. I love the DFG because I am so into this. Days for girls. Because we. I love the idea... The girls don't have to check out sort of once a month from education. They can keep on going in school. And that's what DFG is all about. Right, Michelle? Right, Troy. We have Karen. Karen is looking after the uh, Glen Park Community Garden. And Karen Chia is wanting a group of people to dig up weeds and to make it really good so the community there can engage with a brilliant veggie patch. Yeah? So Karen... Karen's into that. But Bargain Browser needs some painting as well. Food Bank. You would be staggered at the number of feed, uh, you know, feed, the feeding that we do around here. When someone's sick, when someone's neighbor, next door neighbor, work colleague needs a meal, you can call up, come and get some and distribute it. So the, the bank is low and we want some people to cook it up a little bit as well. The Reeds are doing a fun run with Marble Primary. The money is going to um, research, Monash Research for Psychiatry, which was great. And I love this next one. So if 
you want to do a fun run, you can do that as well. The next one is loose coins. We have Marcus Baker. Little Marcus. But how old's Marcus? Around seven. Okay. All right. Marcus is around seven. We agree. He's around seven. His classroom is collecting money for Tanzania and orphanaged or disadvantaged children. Right? And so they're collecting loose change for this month. I would love it. In two weeks' time when Marcus comes, seven-year-old Marcus, right? If we bring so much loose change that literally it is piled up all over him such that he has an OMG moment, all right? He goes, man, these people are serious around new community to actually, can we pile the loose change up around Marcus Baker? Can we do that? So it completely staggers him. He's like, I, I love this place. I'm going to give it all to Tanzania as well. And the last one, heart of new community, not the least. If you are new around the life of NCR, you've been checking us out for a while and you're wondering, how do we tick? What are we about? Want to get more involved? The heart of new community is for you. We're going to run that concurrently and it's going to be a chance for you to really figure out what is the mission, vision, values of NCR. Okay. And so if you're checking into NCR, want to find out more, that's the place for you to stop as well. The theme for it is brightening someone's day. All right. Now, if you've got something else to brighten someone's day, suggest it and we can have other people come on in and and join you with that as well. Because our vision around here is building a growing community of vibrant Jesus followers, visibly impacting our spheres, shaping our city and serving our world. Does that not energize you? Yes, energizes me along the way. Last thing before we get into it is Alpha starts this week. Seven-week Christianity Explained course. And I'd love you to bring a friend along and check this out. Questions to do with life, God, spirituality. There's a nighttime one and a daytime one. If you're thinking about it, now is the time because we need to have some numbers to check it out along the way as well. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to this morning because we are checking out an OMG. Has anyone had an OMG moment this week? That sort of idea of, oh my goodness, oh my God moment, oh my. I was preparing for this morning's talk in a cafe on Friday and the guy next door to me, literally in the, in the, as I was preparing, he went, oh my God. And it was like this exclamation, it's like an exclamation of surprise, right? Uh, in, in fact, it's used on our texts these days, OMG, right? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my God. And I just want to sometimes itch around to the person next door and say, really? Did, did God really have something to do with what you're talking about? Or is it just an expression? It's used as an expression, isn't it? In our sort of vernacular these days as well, depending on which side of the fence you sit, you might say, let's lean towards, oh my goodness. Some other people might lean towards the, oh my God part of it. But I had an OMG moment when I returned from Timor. My wife has been painting the laundry and she painted the laundry lime green, right? And that was doing me, right? That's about the height, right? That's about the level we go to. And then whilst I was away for two weeks in East Timor, she actually took it up to a whole new level. I came into my toilet and I had an OMG moment. This is the other toilet. Have a look. I'm going to take you into the private sanctums of our house right now. This is... That's it. Yeah. There is no relaxing in that room. Right? She said to me, now, I'm just going to let you know, we could always change that, but have a look at this. And I'm like, you come out of that room like, whoa, (laughs) we just had a moment in there. 
Right, so that is the, if you want to ever come to our place and you want to, that is the most uncomfortable room that's supposed to be a comfort room. You are not reading a magazine or a book in that particular room. Enough of that, I'll get into trouble. See, we all have OMG moments. Whilst we're away in East Timor, Fiona Nicholson, she's pulling out instruments and she's actually learning, um, she's actually playing this and she's blowing into that. And, and I, at one stage I went, oh my goodness, is there nothing that this lady can't do? It was an OMG moment. Um, my wife was telling me she knew two ladies who went on a, um, a, an experience in Canada. And they were seeing some majestic mountains in the distance. And they wanted someone to take the, their photograph while they were in this spectacular, scenic place. And so there was a bushwalker coming along and they stopped this gentleman and they said, could you please take our photograph? And he's like, sure. And uh, they were saying, directing him, they were saying, what would, we want you to make sure that you get all of us in the picture. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there's the mountain in the background. So we want to make sure that you get the mountain in the background and we're all cropped perfectly. Are you all right with that? And he's like, yeah, 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 that's sure. No problem. And he takes the photo, he hands it back to the lady and, and he heads off. A few hours later, there was an OMG moment for that, those two ladies when they realized that the person that asked to take the photograph was nothing less than Steven Spielberg, <laughs> one of the greatest cinematographers of our age. And there they were. Ask him, can you make sure you crop the mountain? <laughs> O-M-G. We have them all the time, don't we? In fact, when it comes to belief in Australia, there's a whole diversity of opinions out there. 60 to 70% of Australians would say, we believe that there's this person, there's a, there's a God or some spiritual being out there. When it comes to Jesus, though... Uh, they kind of divides up into three categories. There's one smaller category that says, we don't think he kind of exists. The nah, 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 nah. Then there's, uh, from who's remaining, they splits in half. Half of that group says, we just believe Jesus is an ordinary person. They're kind of, ooh, he's ordinary. And then the other half, they go, actually, no, no. We, we think he's more than that. He's that this, this ah moment with Jesus. That there's, a, there's more to him than what meets the eye. In fact, the book of the Bible that we've been unpacking this, this last month, the writer is, is called John, and he was an eyewitness of Jesus. He, he walked with him, he talked with him, he, he touched him, he ate with him, he, he smelt the smells with him, he, he traveled with him and saw everything. And near the end of his life, he writes this story about Jesus so that people like you and I might have OMG moments when you read with him his narrative about Jesus. The subtext or the subplot, though, begins in chapter 1 where he writes this, just summing up the whole experience of Jesus. The true light which gives light to every human being was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. The tragedy of this story that he writes about with Jesus is that he's the one who actually made the world. That's his claim. But they didn't know him. The reality and the truth in our lives is that we could actually be sitting next to people in our workspaces. We can be eating our food in our homes to our next door neighbors and not really know them. Spend our whole lives doing those things, but never really going any deeper. Isn't that true? It's the same truth about Jesus that seemed to exist from the moment he was born and living his life through. There were people who went, ooh, there's others who went, ah, and there's some who went, nah. The same division occurs. But John writes this book so that people like you and I, and if you're checking out Jesus, that I'm so glad you're here, is that they might actually be able to look at him 
And they might have an OMG moment themselves. Two weeks ago, we were sitting with Jesus beside a well meeting a Samaritan woman. Last week, we were on the, the mountains and in the wilderness eating bread with him. And this week, I want to unpack one of the stories about Jesus being the life of the party. You ready to go? This is how it starts. If you want to follow with us, it's John chapter 2. And you version the Bible, you can follow, or just if you've got a Bible, just sort of follow along with me. It's what it says, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Simple as that. In fact, John, the way he writes, he puts these little clues and hints along the way. He's always pushing forward with the story of Jesus that something is going to happen at the very end that will be incredibly dramatic. So he actually says on the third day, he emphasizes that because something spectacular happens to Jesus on the third day at the end of his life. And we find at the very beginning, if you like, of his ministry, he's here in a wedding in Cana and his mother's there. It assumes that Joseph's no longer around. He's the eldest son. And so his mother and his disciples were all invited to the wedding. Now, I got married some years ago, more than five years ago. And I remember our wedding day. It was one of those smoldering hot days in April, believe it or not. I do remember, honey, April 6th. And... (laughs) I remember being in the, in the church and it was kind of this oven that was baking. And you know how weddings go. You invite all of your aunties, uncles, people that you haven't seen since you were born. Uh, and you're having to organize wedding lists and who sits with who because it's kind of awkward and who hasn't spoken with who and who's had an argument with who. You know how it goes. And so you're inviting all these people and it's a real pressure, isn't it? And I remember this particular day, there was, it was like 57 degrees in this oven baking um, church and, and we were waiting. And my wife had been told, because there was a, a wedding on before this one, uh, that it was delayed. And so she was driving around in a convert- pink convertible VW for 45 minutes, just circling uh, the globe, uh, waiting to actually come in um, because she grew up with VWs and she loved VWs, and so a pink convertible one. And eventually, um, before she arrived, well, I'm standing up the front there, and, and, and perspiration is dripping down, and I remember it just distinctly. And then I remember my mum, my mum, jump up with her handkerchief and start dabbing my forehead in front of all of the <laughs> wedding guests. Because that's what mums do. They embarrass you all the time. And so I kind of picture this wedding day. You've got everyone from Cana and all the relatives and everyone else has come and who sits with who and all that kind of pressure that's on. You, you get this, right, with a wedding. And so then this is what unfolds. The, the biggest disaster you could imagine for a Jewish person having a wedding. The wine ran out. This isn't grape juice. This is wine. And it runs out. Now, our white Anglo weddings are very tame compared to Jewish weddings, We go for like half a day or maybe an evening. But Jewish weddings can go like for a week, I'm told. And and so to have wine run out at the very beginning is kind of incredibly shameful. In fact, I'm told when I was reading that lawsuits could ensue from the the wine running out events like this. And and so the next line says, the wine ran out. And so if you run out of wine on day two, what's going to happen? Three, four, five, six. This is humiliation like you would not believe. The the stakes just got higher. I understand a little bit more about village life, having just recently returned from East Timor. To go to Makalako, the school that was open there, and you saw some clips from it, was just brilliant. People came from all around the countryside, but in particular, the village life just embraced you. 
Everyone from young to old was involved in some way. Even when you were eating, there were people staring over the confines and watching you eat. It was all that close. It was this this sign of pride and joy that this community got to celebrate with us. It was kind of like the finishing touch. Without the finishing touch, it's almost like a shame to them. So that's why when we heard that we couldn't go to Larry Sula to open the school that we had raised money for two years ago because of the rains, because of the remoteness, because of the delays, uh, we were looking forward to going to this particular place and giving this village what they wanted from us as a celebration because it was part of their culture to express that. That's why it was tragic that the week before we arrived to learn that some rebels had been set loose and on the loose in that area and the military had had actually a shutdown. You mightn't have known this Brom before I left, but Bronte was fine and they had a military shutdown and so we couldn't actually go up to the school to check it out and give them that pride, that honour of actually being with them. So what happened is that the principal of the school, Senior Thomas, he walked on bush tracks nine hours to meet with us for dinner. And he gave us a formal ceremony with the the ties. And there's always this thing of, you know what, this is just a little bit, but we really want you to come back. The good news is that he came to the Makalako opening, so he kind of knows how much their village threw into the whole celebration. So Nandy said, "Uh, we're going to get there, right? I I think I heard that, Nandy. Nandy's saying, we're going to get there. So if there's a trip that goes, you want to be on that one. Because Senior Thomas has seen the Makalako village, and I reckon he's going to want to go higher. So even the drivers in our cars said, this, this is really traditional team. This is the real thing. Like, they went the whole nine yards. So you will love it. It'll just be remote, and they've got the bandits, so it's kind of okay as well. So the wine ran out. I get this in a higher level of this is what it meant to the whole community. And so Jesus' mother came over to him, like leaning on the oldest brother, And said, they haven't got any wine. What are you going to do about it? And so this is the curious reply from Jesus. Oh, mother. In other versions, it's like woman. But it's not meant to be woman like that. It's supposed to be, oh, mom, more more endearing. What's that got to do with you and me? My time hasn't yet come. When you follow with Jesus, he's always pointing to the idea that there's something of my destiny, my future that's happening. And you're not in control of it. In fact, this is the very moment in Jesus' life where he actually separates himself from doing his mother's bidding to doing his father's bidding. His time hasn't yet come. However, knowing that and that sort of separation between the the relationship then, his mother turns and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I know he's going to do something. And so then this is what Jesus does. Six stone water jars were standing there ready for use in the Jewish purification rites. Every time Jewish people would eat, there was this ceremony, if you like, of washing of hands and washing of dishes to make sure that there was nothing sort of externally that made you impure. In fact, it was supposed to be a reflection of what was happening inside as well. Each held about 20 or 30 gallons. These are big jars. Fill the jars with water, said Jesus to the servants, and they filled them right to the brim. Now draw some out, he said, and take it to the chief steward. Now, at this moment, we need to pause and actually realize that Jesus starts to mess with our heads. If you're here this morning and you think miraculous things aren't possible, they aren't out there. In fact, all there is is the natural forces in this world that will not be contravened. Then at this moment, you're going to probably be one of those persons that goes, nah, 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 nah. 
But I tell you this, the writers aren't making these things up to try and convince or trick us 2,000 years later. They're writing these events because they truly believe they happened. In fact, I think it's fair for you, is it reasonable to say that if you believe there's a God, then miraculous things intervening in this world may happen. But as to the the bigger picture of, of how it all works itself out, well, Jesus is about to mess with their heads. Because all they know at this stage, those servants, is that they're taking some wine, sorry, water to the head waiter. This is the moment where, if you like, their idea about the world around about them and who Jesus may or may not be gets tested. For all they know, they're picking up some water out of some jars and taking it to the head waiter, which might actually just make a bad situation even more exasperated and, and even worse. And so they dip their goblets, if you like, in and they take it over to the head waiter and he has an OMG moment. This is what he says. He goes to the groom and he says, what everybody normally does at these weddings, Mr. Groom, is to serve the good wine first and then the worst stuff when the people have had plenty to drink. But you, you, you have kept the good wine until now. No one does that. No one keeps the good wine until everyone keeps the the worst wine to after everyone has been drinking so much for the last two or three days, they don't even know that it's bad wine. But you give them the best now. This doesn't make sense. What's going on? He has no idea where it's come from. But then the disciples and the stewards have their own OMG moment. This even in Cana of Galilee, Galilee was the first of Jesus' signs. He displayed his power, who he is, his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see, there's this moment in which they see something more to Jesus than just being an ordinary guy. And they look at him and they ask the question, if you like, beneath their, their thoughts is, who are you? You see, Jesus could have given the same wine, right? He wouldn't have known any different. Oh, you just found some extra wine. He could have given them worse wine, but he doesn't. He actually gives them better wine. And so that the head Waiter, if you like, he goes, wow, this is Cabsav from the Kunawara. This is champagne from champagne. This is not just the good stuff. This is the best stuff. You see, the truth about Jesus, he takes us where we're at, washes us clean, and whispers in our ear, the best is yet to come. That's what Jesus does. You see, it shifts the disciples for the first time from just believing about Jesus into believing in Jesus. And there's a difference. You know, you could have grown up all your life believing that Jesus is an ordinary person or maybe the son of God himself. But it's never translated from a proposition to a personal relationship. Believed in him. And there's a difference. It's the difference between believing about something like a mathematical equation. Two plus two equals four. You would agree with me. You believe that. You work it out in your head and there's the proposition and you actually agree to it. Two plus two equals four. But you see, Jesus isn't a proposition. He's a person that's alive and real and more than just the person who meets the ordinary everyday scale of understanding of what humanity is. He's not a proposition in our mind like an equation. He's a person. 
Do you remember growing up in maybe year seven, eight or nine and learning something about surds? Do you remember that? Anyone did maths here and remember surds? Do you remember ever putting your hand up to your teacher and saying, Miss, sir, why are we learning about surds? What relevance does a surd or will a surd have in my entire life? And the teacher will give you an answer like, oh, well, you know, if you can learn this, you can learn a whole bunch of other things, and surds are really important. And you kind of went, you know what? I don't believe you. (laughs) Because since I learned about surds, I can tell you honestly, I have never used a surd in my entire life. (laughs) I mean, when I'm in a disaster, when I'm in a traffic accident, uh, I don't go, oh, wait a second, I'm going to fix this with a surd. Here, I have one. (laughs) Right When you have an argument with someone you really love and you're trying to make up, none of you have ever said, oh, wait a second, can we just wait for a moment? You know, I have a surd. <laughs> this will fix it. No one, right? But yet what Jesus wants to do is move our ideas about him being a proposition into a relationship in which we believe in him and orient our lives around him so that he takes effect and his life becomes manifest in us. I met a a young, no, not a young, I met an elderly nun by the name of Madre Elsa over in East Timor. So a week and a half ago, I was sitting there with Bronte and and I introduced Bronte to her and she took her by the hand and and, and she said, come and sit down here. And and she's like five foot two, no joke. She's a mother, Teresa. We built a a kitchen for her over in Suai about five, six years ago. And and as we sat there and, and the love of this Jesus just really shone through her. We asked her about her story. She said in 99, when all the Timorese, so when all of the Indonesian army was moving westward and destroying everything, she said, people were running to me and I was hiding. We're all hiding from the military. She said in that space and she said, I cried out to Jesus. I said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? What should I do? What should I do? And she said, and then he spoke to me. He said, get up. Be courageous. Go out. So she, I said, what did you do, Marjorie? She said, I did. I hopped up all five foot two of her. And I'm told that the nuns went out into those places and they actually went up to the Indonesian military and said, brother, stop doing this. And they stood between man and man. When you looked at her, Jesus was more than just a proposition, an equation in her head. It was a living engagement with the God who had actually risen for her. And he was alive, I tell you, in her. Casavita, the group that were looking after domestic violence, sexual violence against young women, looking after the young women and their children. We, we met this group. And, and if you asked them and pressed them and said, why are you doing this? Not only would they say, well, this is a great crime here. We need to do something about it. But as you pressed them and pushed them, they would be able to say to you, you know what? It's because we have engaged with the God who loves. And we have come to know his son, Jesus. And as he has poured himself into us and we have believed in him, He's come alive in us. Why do we do this? Because we want to pour and give his love away in practical ways that make a difference. We went into one of the shelters and in one of the rooms, there was a 12-year-old girl who had just recently given birth. Baby beside her on the bed. People loving on her. Amidst the suffering, if you pushed them and prodded them, I'd say it's the love of Jesus that's shining through. You see, if you scratch them a little bit deeper, they would say, 
Jesus isn't just a proposition. He wasn't just an ordinary man. He did exist and he's alive in me. My friends, there's a difference between believing and knowing. You see, someone, when someone embraces Jesus, it's as though they organize their life around him. Like Renee said, it's the agenda starts to shift when he starts to say, what resources do you have? What have you got in your hand? What have you got in your bank? What have you got that you might use to love on others and serve so that I'm alive in you? The Bible says this, if you seek me, you'll find me if you search me with all your heart. Band's going to come up in a moment. They're going to play just a song. No words. Just a space for you and I to engage with Jesus. If you're checking out God here today, you can just have a look at this stuff and maybe reflect on an amazing story, Jesus being like a life of a party. God speaks to his people in the book of Jeremiah during captivity. And he says to them, after 70 years, I tell you this, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. It seems that the God who created this world, he wants to reveal himself to people. He doesn't want to hide behind a corner. He doesn't want to hide behind a rock. He doesn't want to play tricks. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. There's one criteria. Do it from your heart. You mean it. The people who do that call out. John writes in the very first chapter of his narrative about Jesus, he said, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the child of God, the living God. seems that Jesus wants to take us from where we are and move us to where he wants us to be. One of this morning, if you come here and you kind of, your hands are closed when it comes to Jesus. I wonder as you hear this song being played, you might just want to reflect and say, do I really kind of believe God's like an equation, a two plus two equals? Maybe you're here in this space and you say, God, I just want to think about what it might mean to open up myself to you and seek you. Maybe you're here this morning and your hands have been open to God, but it's still kind of like an equation in your head. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. It's like the wind blowing on a tree. You don't know where it's come from, but you see its effect. And I tell you, you need to be born from above. When the Holy Spirit blows life into dead bodies, living bodies to give them even more life. Maybe your thought, your prayer here this morning is, Jesus, would you take my intellectual belief about you and would you lower it 15 inches to my heart? Breathe on me will be your prayer. The Holy Spirit, I might know you.
Maybe for you, it's saying, I want to do an elf course. I want to have the conversation. Or maybe for you, it's I've just had my hand open to God and, and he says, Jesus invites me to remain in him and I've kind of left him behind. But then I've heard what Chris has said. I've heard what... I've heard what Renee said. Now my question needs to be, how do you want me to use what I've got today and in the future? It's got to do with calling. You might want to open up your life today and say, Jesus, where are you calling me to be? What are you calling me to do? And then if he speaks the courage to act.